you're talking about sort of income inequality and the fact that some people share. Yeah, I mean, this is it's part obviously part of the problem that we think market creating innovations can solve, but it's not everything. The goal of market creating innovations can be not only to create the market, but create local jobs. And so the idea with the market creating innovation is it's not just money that gets quickly exported out of the country or who the oil industry is a good example in Nigeria. That's an enormously successful industry, but very few people um, have actually benefited from it versus a market creating innovation would create a lot of local jobs along the way. Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com slash syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. Are you going organic, keto, paleo, some type of diet for incredible performance? You want the healthiest foods delivered to your doorstep fast and easy? Well, you should check out today's show sponsor, Thrive Market, the best organic online grocery store in the States. They've got gluten-free lentils and breads, chemical-free cleaners, organic coconut milk, all at up to 50% off delivered to your door with a subscription to Thrive Market's awesome online health store. Listeners get a bonus 25% off their first order, up to 20 bucks when you use our link, disruptors.fm slash thrive. Check it out. They've got just about everything at rock bottom prices for, for best in class quality, regardless of how you're eating. And I know I switch it up. I'm sure you guys do as well. Disruptors.fm slash thrive for more details. I spent all day today writing. I love coffee, but I hate jitters. I was at Starbucks and I'm a little bit bouncing off the walls. That's why I'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Four Sigmatics Lion's Mane Blend. If you haven't tried Lion's Mane or the other awesome mushrooms that this Finnish company is putting out there, I definitely recommend it. Between the podcast, books, startup coaching, and life as a dad, I need to be switched on and creative in a big way. And Four Sigmatic's proprietary blend, it's got only 40 milligrams of caffeine for creative, natural, drug-free productivity to power your day without the crash, side effects, or addiction. And you know what? The flavor, it's awesome. Listeners, if you go to disruptors.fm slash FS, you'll save 10% off anything from Four Sigmatic. They've got some incredible superfood blends. I recommend checking out their Four Mushroom blend as well. And you know what? You'll get free shipping anywhere in the US. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash FS. Use offer code disruptors to save 10% and to take it to the next level. Tim Ferriss recommends this to everybody. Jonathan Levy, one of the awesome guests we had, our Superhuman Academy all-star, he loves it as well. And it's powering elite performers like you everywhere. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. We're living in an era of exponentially converging technologies where the differences between today and tomorrow become larger and larger each and every passing day. Technology is advancing. Disruption is progressing. Well, many of you may know Clay Christensen and his model of innovation and disruption. Today, we've got his co-author on quite a few books, Karen Dillon, on the program. She's a former editor of the Harvard Business Review and co-author of three books with Mr. Christensen, including the forthcoming Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Lifts Nations Out of Poverty, and Bestsellers Competing Against Luck, and How Will You Measure Your Life? We get into a ton of aspects of the economy, business, the future, and most importantly, innovation and how entrepreneurship can alleviate income inequality around the world. Today, we'll discuss the three types of innovation, how they impact the economy, why we're not living in a new age of robber barons, the reason Karen thinks today's top tech giants will ultimately be disrupted without government regulation, how to combat the growing education crisis, the dangers of increasing isolationism, and why it sometimes is actually beneficial, what's the real future of publishing and media, and why Karen thinks we'll all be working more, not less, in 20 years. And before we jump into the episode... This is the part of the program where I have to ask you guys for your support. You might not like this. You might have already supported us. Although only about 0.15% of the audience, slightly less actually, has supported the program. 
that's not enough for us to be able to make this sustainable. If you believe in what we're doing here, if you enjoy the podcast, if you like listening to me talk to some of the smartest people in the world and try to dig into their brain and understand what makes them tick and why that's important for all of us, then consider supporting us. Disruptors.fm slash Patreon. It'll take two minutes of your time just to automate your support. If this is something that you think needs to exist in the world, and this is something you benefit from. There's the problem of collective action. We're all destroying our planet because it doesn't impact us individually that much. But on the whole, it becomes so negative over time. It's the collective action problem where we all litter, we all poop in the toilet without flushing, and eventually the toilet spills over. That's what's happening, and that's what we see right now with media, with Facebook and Google dominating the advertising game, and clickbait and eyeballs becoming the increasing currency which elected Mr. Trump and leads to a lot of the polarization that we have today. If there's things that you support, if there's things that you value, you've got to be willing to put your money where your mouth is. So if you value what we're doing here at the disruptors, which as I may add, is a place you can make a tax-deductible donation if you're a U.S. citizen or paying U.S. taxes, then go to disruptors.fm slash Patreon. Consider supporting us there. Again, only 0.15% of our audience right now is supporting us. The audience is growing very nicely. I'm glad that you guys like the podcast, but now please help us make this sustainable. Each episode requires a ton of time and effort on the part of me and my team to both find and research guests, get things lined up, make sure that we can deliver awesome episodes to you guys, the editing, the production, the marketing, getting everything out there, all to try to make a bigger impact. This isn't about making money. Right now it's making essentially no money and we're floating this ourselves. But for it to be able to be sustainable and to keep doing this, I really, really need your support. Disruptors.fm slash Patreon. Please consider supporting us. Please help us make this sustainable. If this can make even a minimum type wage for the amount of time and effort I'm putting into it, it's something that I'll continue doing because it's something I believe in. But it's got to be economically feasible. It's got to be economically feasible, guys. Disruptors.fm slash Patreon. And now, enough of our problems. Let's get into this episode. Without further ado, I give you Karen Dillon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You've got a new book that just came out, The Prosperity Paradox, and it talks about poverty, inequality, and technology, and how things are changing and evolving. So quickly, take me through kind of the thesis for that, because I think it is a a broader sociological problem we're facing. It is. It comes from Clay Christensen's work and theories on innovation. But the, the basic underlying idea is that there are different types of innovation in the world, and we think of innovation as one sort of ubiquitous thing. But there are different types of innovation in the world, and they have different effects on companies and, as it turns out, on economies and countries. So the idea is that prosperity, what we see you know, in America and South Korea and prosperous countries around the world, actually can start to be generated by the right type of innovation coming from within companies in countries. So the idea is that it's possible to jumpstart in a developing an, an economy in rough shape through innovation. It doesn't have to be handed down from government or handed down from donations or the U.S. that companies themselves can ignite prosperity. Can we get a, can we get a quick example or two? Sure. So, so um, if you look, I'll give the quickest one is probably looking at America in the 1800s, mid-1800s, was an extremely poor country. It was very impoverished by almost every measure, more more impoverished than we would consider modern-day Bangladesh by many of the sort of metrics that we would use. But there were a, a handful, a lot of very successful innovators who changed that through what we call market-creating innovation. A great innovation is Henry Ford and the auto. So the idea is he innovated to make automobiles accessible, cheaper, and, and available to many more people than had been the province of the rich from the automobiles before. And in making that product affordable and accessible to more people, he began to generate prosperity, meaning not only did he create jobs through the auto industry, he created infrastructure, roads, railroads. He created a sort of ecosystem that fed into his companies, suppliers, things like that, that that what that one innovation, figuring out how to make automobiles affordable and accessible did was begin with many other innovators who did similar things to jumpstart the American economy to the point where we forget how poor we were not really that long ago. It's almost like a stepwise improvement. Suddenly something shifts and that changes everything and that everything it's, it's is sort of suddenly a triggering bigger. effect. 
exactly the ripple effect. But this particular kind of innovation, where you're really creating something that was not there, that was that was people weren't consuming it. We call it non-consumption. Um, has a ginormous ripple effect. And so when you see uh, economies through the lens of what's possible through innovation, you realize there's an enormous potential upside through companies in innovation as well. Is that only through consumable products, or is that something that broadly applies in more uh, um, in, in the future? Not everything's going to be able to be consumable because if we have everyone living at a, a first world standard, suddenly the world implodes upon itself, as we're kind of seeing these days. Uh, no, I think it's any any product or service um, that in terms of how you're defining consumable. But you know, for example, uh, there's a really interesting company in Mexico that's making healthcare specifically for diabetics affordable and accessible. Um, it's called Clinicas del Azúcar, you know, sugar, sugar clinics. Um, and they basically set up almost kind of a, a McDonald's, I'll call it, model of, of um, diabetic care where you pay in a membership annually, very little money, and you go to one of their locations and you might go through seven different stations relatively quickly to get your blood sugar check, to get your other vitals check, to get to see a doctor, to, to do whatever the steps are that one needs to do to stay in good care of their diabetes. That's a service. Um, and I can imagine there are lots of other similar services that could exist that created that market in Mexico. It didn't exist before this. So to clarify, Mexico has a must faster, cheaper, and more efficient system for healthcare for diabetes, at least in the States. It, it's, a, it's a burgeoning one, but it's it spawned lots of imitators already. So yes, that has created a market for diabetic healthcare, affordable diabetic and accessible diabetic healthcare in Mexico. It's very exciting, actually. And that comes up against the other type of innovation, sustaining innovation, where the big guys try to lock themselves in place. How do the two, yes. how does the two play out and what's happening in terms of what you're seeing in the world uh, on today's timescale? So um, there are three types of innovation, actually, in Clay's universe. Uh, and all of the again, have their role, but uh, most companies excuse me, typically go for what you mentioned, sustaining innovation, which is we already have a product, we already have customers, we want to make sure you keep coming back and maybe even spend a little more money with us next time. So we're going to add heated seats to our cars. It's a little bit nicer. You'll pay more for it next time. Or we're going to create your iPhone in all different colors. You know, there's nothing earth shatteringly new about that, but it might be enough to keep loyal customers or have them you know, grade up to the next level product, spend a little more money with you. That's important because it becomes more profitable for companies. They, they try to look to keep their customers and make a little more money from, from each customer. There's another type called efficiency innovation, which is what you see, like Walmart's probably the best example of it. How can we do more with less? How can we drive our costs down? So in theory, we free up cash to make other investments or do other things. But efficiency innovations lead to factories being opened in Mexico or going to China. Is Let's find a way to make our products a little more efficient, more cheaply, free up a little bit of cash and keep our cash flow going. Now, those are both totally normal things that have to and should happen in all in all companies. But market-creating innovation is where enormous growth can happen. It's not sort of hanging on to your market share or squeezing a little bit more out. It's creating a market where there wasn't one, creating an enormous potential upside. And we can see this happening all over the world in, in lots of locations that would seem shockingly unlikely. A great example is um, the innovator entrepreneur, uh, Mo Ibrahim, who um, started Celtel, mobile phone telephony in Africa. When he started it in the 90s, I think, uh, people said he was crazy to be thinking about setting up a mobile phone company in Africa where there were relatively few landlines at the time. It was a, it was a wealthy person's tool. And so to go straight to mobile phones, how could people possibly afford that? He realized that he wasn't competing for those people against landlines. He was competing against nothing. We have no way to communicate with each other other than on foot or traveling, you know, two days to go see my mother someplace else in the country or borrowing someone's phone. So he created a market where enormously successful mobile phone market throughout Africa. And he sold the company six years later for billions of dollars and uh, is living living well off of his uh, his success in predicting that upside. So the upside oftentimes accrues to the top of the top. And that's kind of the nature of exponential return. And I would agree that progress oftentimes in almost all situations leads to progress and prosperity for everyone, but it's not it's not linear. How do we deal with those changes when in San Francisco, you have people with billions of dollars and one of the highest unemployment and uh, homelessness rates in the world? The the same types of problems are happening across the world between economies and in and outside of country. How do we think about that? So you're talking about sort of income inequality and the fact that some people share. Yeah, I mean, this is it's part, obviously part of the problem that we think market creating innovation can solve, but it's not everything. 
everything. The goal of market creating innovation can be not only to create the market, but create local jobs. And so the idea with the market creating innovation is it's not just money that gets quickly exported out of the country or who the oil industry is a good example in Nigeria. That's an enormously successful industry, but very few people um, have actually benefited from it versus a market creating innovation would create a lot of local jobs along the way, creating opportunities for many more people to basically earn a living wage. If you even look at the Nollywood industry, do you know what Nollywood is? No, what is Nollywood? With an N, Nollywood is the Nigerian film industry, which you may not have known, but is actually a really big, really big uh, market creating innovation now. It started off with a guy who got a whole bunch of blank VHS tapes, like a local shop owner that had nothing on them. And Nigeria did not have a big movie house movie industry and mostly just watched movies like the rest of us watch, whatever came from other countries and wherever they could be seen, but it wasn't a big industry. He saw these blank videotapes and thought, huh, how can I sell those? What can I do with those? And he figured out how to create a really you know, rudimentary movie called Living in Bondage, which was, I think, a two-part movie. And he put, sold them on those videotapes. That was the beginning of creating what has been a really big movie industry in Nigeria for Nigerians, for Asaya. So there, there are, there are, it's in the billions of dollars now. I think that the first Nigerian movie just sold to Netflix in the past year created thousands of jobs, not something you and I necessarily will benefit from, but for Nigerians, that has created an awful lot of opportunities for people from nothing. It didn't get exported out the door with oil and it didn't stay in a handful of well-connected hands. It, it created thousands of jobs for everyday people. It has, but it brings up the question of globalism versus localism or populism, which has been everywhere these days. Uh, we do live in a paradigm where everything kind of goes up and down, but it does seem like we are becoming more separate and isolated than than at least recent history. And there's some major potential problems with that. How do you, how do Clay, how do people that are focused on these type of problems, which I know it's not directly your focus, but it comes into the, into the foreground a lot. How do you guys think about that? Well, I can tell you, I can't answer for Clay, I can answer for myself that I think that I, I am a globalist, so I believe that the global world being connected is a good thing. But one thing we've seen in our work is that market creating innovations that start for us, by us in local economies, that's where they get their foothold. That's where they initially become successful and the local economy benefits from it. But very often they go on to be bigger globally. There's, you look at some of the very successful Chinese manufacturers like Galant, when we talk about in our in our book, G-A-L-A-N-Z, which create micro started off creating microwave ovens not to export, not just to sort of send out cheap ones to be made and send out across the world, but for people in China who have small apartments and don't have the same industrial grade needs that we might in American kids, little small ones that would fit, created an enormous and successful market in China. That became the tip of the iceberg for them then in addition to that and creating other products for the Chinese market. They're one of the top exporters of, of, of white goods around the world now. So I think success in, in the root community can and should lead to greater opportunity outside of your country as well. It just becomes a foundation for it. So it's possible to be both local and global at the same time and aspire to both. As long as there's not too much in the terms of tariffs and friction essentially going to waste and money the government. Is that a fair, well, is that a fair caveat? A, I, I, that, I'm not going to, I don't have a strong position on that other than the government has a role, but we, we do believe that industry and innovation and companies can can on by themselves really begin to ignite an economy when they're allowed to, to do what they do well. You bring up when they're allowed to, but I think a lot of today's companies are getting so powerful, you could argue they may be able to insert themselves, so to speak. What do you see the role of companies and government in the in the future as companies like Amazon, Facebook, Apple become larger and larger megabyte? It's a very interesting question. You know, at some point, I mean, obviously there has to be partnerships. You know, they need to they need to find ways to work together and support each other. So often, companies like those companies before they became as big as they are were so far ahead of government and pioneering. You know, the way they do business and even in infrastructure. You know, the things that they created that the government hadn't even begun to think about. Facebook and Amazon and maybe Google, you'll notice, actually laid down some transatlantic tracks, basically, to make for faster internet communication. That was done as a private venture. Um, I think it's hard for the government to keep up and just watch 
the senator's question, Mark Zuckerberg, about, you know, Facebook, and, and you realize we have a really big education gap between what those companies know and see and deal with and think about every day and how innovative they are and what the government knows. Uh, so I think closing that gap is important, but I personally believe there has to be a partnership of some sort. It has to be one built on understanding, not one built on fear or desire to thwart in some way. You brought up the 1800s. Is this the next era of robber barons? Are we are we going back towards that? Good question. I mean, I don't think so because the robber barons by and large enrich themselves. And I do see, again, what we hope we see with market creating innovations in the US and around the world is lots of opportunity for lots of people. And we're a far more educated society. You know, people are are far more aware of what's possible and expectations have been set. It's not quite the same as the rubber barons were functioning in a time when most people were, were very desperate to earn a living in some way. I think people obviously still have those needs, but I think we come from a much more sophisticated place. I hope so anyway. I hope so anyways as well. How do you think about the, the market disrupting and overall innovation possibilities of AI as more and more things begin to get automated? Well, I think it's both, ex- I think it's exciting to be honest with you, because I think you can't, you know, you can't stop innovation. You just have to find the right ways for it to be fit into those three categories, sustaining innovation, efficiency innovation, and market creating innovation. For sure, AI will fall into the category of sustaining and efficiency. It will probably find ways to make products uh, or services cheaper, more affordable, more accessible, possibly find ways for companies to charge more, to make a few sort of bells and whistles, make things more appealing. The question is, does it become a market creating innovation? I think it's entirely possible. It just have to be, has to be thought through that frame. What can we do that we couldn't do before? in a market that seemed like it, it had no no prospects uh, because we have this capability now. So I, I can't imagine why it wouldn't. You, know, you can never stay still. You know, the economies are not grown by clinging to what has worked for the past decade. You have to find ways to, to see new opportunity. And I can't see why that would not be a tool to do it. Perhaps we just haven't found all the right ways to do it yet. 15 years from now, assuming we're going on a population percentage basis, will there be a larger or a smaller percentage of people employed full-time or working 40 hours a week? Oh, I have, I have no basis for answering that question, but I'll give you my gut feeling. What's your gut feeling? Uh, my gut feeling is that uh, people will still be working. The same amount or more will be working 40 hours a week, but still be working differently. They might be working multiple, multiple gigs, multiple jobs. They might be working virtually. They might be working. Um, you know, shifting their teams from time to time, the Hollywood model. But I still think a full-time version of working is what's in the cards for most people, I think. I know what you're saying, what might be possible to do a, you know, in an eight-hour work week, do, do a job differently or to have that be seen as full employment. I still think we're creatures of the 40-hour work week for the foreseeable future. Not the four-hour work week? Come on, Tim Ferriss had a great title. <laughs> I admire it. I, anyone who can think about doing it. And I personally work differently than I did in my 20s, but uh, uh, I still think it adds up to it adds up to a full work week one way or the other. Yeah, he was doing like 80 hours when you wrote that book. So <laughs> are there any good examples of negative market creating disruptions where the net posit- or the net result on the world or humanity was actually something non-beneficial? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but uh, you know, there's always, every, you know, there's, everything has a double-edged sword. What you can do with technology is, you know, mostly, you know, I think a force for good, but it's possible that uh, you, could, you could create something that was not a product that the world wished it had. You know, terrorism is a disruptive force for you know traditional armies that's not a market creating innovation that although it might be actually but i think that's existed for a long time that's not a force for good but uh, it exists nonetheless and it's been successful nonetheless i would argue you guys should add a, another framework to your existing three and that would be sustaining acquisition so how do you think about companies especially today facebook has a competitor they buy competitor a they have a competitor right. b they buy b they create a new product just copying someone else and destroy competitor c how do we deal with the world where we have so much power in the hands of so few, and they've learned from a lot of the lessons of the leader past. That's true, but I think that has actually been the case more than you may than you may remember or know. I, years ago, I worked at Inc. Magazine, which was for entrepreneurs before really the dot-com boom um, took over. And that was always the case. Money always was uh, available to buy out competitors where someone's identified a market. I think that is true. What I think the shame of it is, though, is that I, I just don't think there's as much time given. I think companies may even start themselves with the hope of being bought out. They may never really get beyond proof of concept, a few smart people, 
you know, they want to be bought. That's their exit strategy. It's very different from the idea of I want to actually create value. I want to have a 20 or 30 or 40 year business. I want to, I want to do this because it's interesting and engaging. And, and part of what I'm going to do is going to be part of my self identity. I think you lose innovators when the, the end game is how quickly and how much can we be bought out for without having to fully create a company. I would like to see more companies, more products, more services really fully developed before they get bought out because I think that's where you see a lot of really terrific innovation. Is that model of Silicon Valley and venture capital uh, and ultimately a bubble that will pop? The one I just said where you're quickly... Yeah, I think so because my sense from the Silicon Valley companies I've talked with is that this is a sustaining strategy. It's not a market creating strategy and ultimately I think market creation is the only way to grow big and long term. I, I think it's exciting and I think sort of continually buying up competitors, buying up ideas, buying up you know, easy, easy wins is not the same as coming up with the next Facebook or the next Google or the next Dropbox or whatever it is. So I, I think ultimately that won't be enough for people. It won't produce the kind of returns. It won't attract and keep the best talent. I think in time we'll get back in, in the curve of innovation being valued, truly valued and creating new markets from Silicon Valley as well. Do you know Ben Thompson is aggregation? Uh, I don't. I know, who, I know who he is and I know a little bit about it, but not well enough to talk about it. It's more enough once you aggregate a large enough amount of customer, customer demand, essentially you've got the customers there. You kind of have the flywheel effect where it's almost impossible to stop. Amazon wants right. to launch a new product. Well, they're going to sell it to everyone. Facebook wants to add banking. Well, everyone has a Facebook account. So suddenly they have a Facebook banking account. It's kind of the concept of when you have flywheel type companies, like a lot of the platforms we have today, they grow more powerful, not less powerful and can almost be unstoppable. Well, I mean, time will tell. I see that. I understand that. And you know, I think of how integrated those companies are in my life and my kids' life and, uh, you know, the work I do. Uh, but I don't know. I just think history tells us that things do shift over time and, and maybe it needs an inflection point or really new ideas to come up. But if you look at the Fortune 500 list or even the NASDAQ list, that there's a giant shift in you know, a 10-year period. So there is a lot more change. There, there are a handful of companies that fit that description like you're talking about. But there are many, many more that don't. And I think that's where the action is going to be outside of those ones. And I don't think anything's permanent and unstoppable. I think they have enormous advantage and I think they take advantage of it. And they're integrated in my life too. But I don't know, if I were a betting person, I wouldn't say that in 20 years, everything would be the same as it is now or bigger. I would say there'd be something new and exciting that would happen. Do you think that will happen without regulation? Or do you think regulations also require? Oh, you know, I'm sort of the capitalist in that I think free market is a good thing. I do think we get into some tricky territory, moral territory and privacy territory and potential that we've seen in the past few years for explosive and, and negative uses of some of these things. So I, I guess I think there's probably a role for regulation. But in general, I think um, the free, what a thousand free markets will. At the very least, it's the, the least bad thing we found to date. So you were... <laughs> You were used to be the editor of Harvard Business Review. What was it like working with so many publishers and going through that process? Take me through a little bit what it looked like, because most people don't have a lens. So it was a few years ago, so I would say I'm a data point of one from a little bit long uh, time ago. But um, it was, it's a fantastic uh, place to work, and it's a fantastic job in part because you're, you have the luxury of being able to cherry pick which of the world's greatest thought leaders you want to work with um, and their ideas and collaborating editors at Harvard Business Review actually really collaborate on the articles in the magazine and then in the, in the years that followed that on, online in the book division. It's very exciting to work with people who are really smart, you know, X years ahead of, uh, of the typical person in thinking about it or their research is cutting edge or they're seeing a problem through a different lens. Um, but it is, it is a challenging process because they're so smart and because they're academic taking their ideas and making them accessible to a, a wide audience um, can take some time, take a few rounds. Uh, I think Harvard Business Review, in my opinion, is one of the best edited magazines in the country when I was there and now, just because the editors care so much. They work really, nothing goes in without a lot of thought and a lot of how do we make this an accessible, smart, accessible article for uh, practitioners, people who are working in companies. Um, it's not intended purely for an academic audience, so that's a challenge. But I thought it was really fun. So it's like the exact opposite of BuzzFeed or TechCrunch. What was, it is uh, the exact what was opposite. The, what was the business model, and how did you guys make money? Did that dictate anything? Well, so this is pre. This again predates me, and, and, and it probably has shifted in the years since I've gone. But um, the business model was for a very long time that um, 
Harvard Business Review paid relatively little for the rights to publish your article to be $100. I don't know if that's still the same number. And then we turned it into a great article, we hoped, and then we sold it in the form of a magazine subscription or on uh, the newsstand. But then Harvard Business Review owns the rights to use that article. So you see best of books, you see online material, you see we have a corporate learning division that creates that creates products for companies that teach people to some management um, strategy and theory to use in, in their workplace. And then all of the famous Harvard Business School case studies are actually published through Harvard Business Review Publishing and sold through that link. So it's pretty, it's a separate company from Harvard Business School, but the close relationship has led to a pretty healthy revenue stream for a pretty long time and advertising and webinars and all the things people make money on in publishing with, again, I think very high quality products and a pretty loyal customer base. I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, or startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com syndicate. How do we deal with uh, deal with that for publishing going forward? Because there has been a pretty low quality product, a pre- pretty unloyal customer base with lots of advertising. It's kind of the inverse of exactly what you just described. And that's caused a lot of the problems because I want to have a clickbait headline. Well, I mean, I, I, I do believe in the model for Harvard Business Review. I really do. I believe that the market will tell you in time, you know, quality uh, what people are willing to pay for and whether or not they're willing to pay for it through subscriptions or because advertisers know a highly qualified audience comes to that to look at something. I just do believe in good quality content being the start of everything and then building around it. And, you know, I think in time, publications will get that right. We'll find that equilibrium and Harvard Business Review has done extremely well through all the years, all the years even since I've left, using that as their model. Combination, you know, disrupting themselves in some ways with a lot of what's free online, but it's still very good content. And then having the core material appear in the magazine has been a very successful model for them. And I think others have their own struggles, but quality content to me is always, always the center of a good editorial product. 10 years from now, what percentage of the top magazines, news sites, blogs, podcasts, etc. will be some type of subscription or payment versus being free with advertising? Good question. I, I think it will be a very small percentage, but I think it will be ones that people are. I mean, I think that you just, you know yourself, which ones you're willing to pay for and which ones you're not. And just because you're not willing to pay for one, I don't think subscription model is the only way to go. I don't think it's the only way to make money, but I think it's it's one way. I think a small percentage of probably reasonably expensive ones will be worth it to people. I think the other writers will find a different model if they have, you know, again, quality content and people really want to go there. I know what I pay for outside of what's free. I pay for the New York Times. I pay for the Washington Post. Um, I pay for Harvard Business Review. I know the things that I think are worth going into my own pocket for. And I know what things I like to see, and I live with the ads. Both of those work for me, depending on the publication and what I get from it. I think that's the problem is the ads work for people, and they don't really realize what they're giving up for that. So I would argue a large portion of the reason Trump won was exactly that. You write a scandalous article, and I was in Europe at the time. People were asking, is this really serious? And they're all reading these articles. They're reading the articles. They get all the eyeballs. They get the eyeballs. They get the demand. It gets ranked up higher and higher and higher and higher. And you kind of have your self-fulfilling prophecy of you can just spout whatever you want to spout. And if you do a good job of making it something that will trigger human instincts, 
well, you you win. I, I agree with you, but I don't think you can put the genie back in the bottle. I mean, I think I think what we have to do is educate people. I think I think in time, I mean, it may be an inflection point as well before people realize uh, how do we sort out the truth from not the truth, a valuable source or not. And we're going through a very painful time, in my opinion, right now, as as we can see all the all the vulnerabilities in what we do now. But again, I hope I may be wrong that in time, good quality will eventually win out, and and people will, will realize relative value remains to be seen. Amen. Speaking of which, if this is relative value, guys, disruptors.fm slash Patreon. Remember to support us. You can write it off for taxes. And <laughs> anyway, so go, going back to you. So Karen, what what technologies, areas, industries, trends do you find most exciting? I, I do find media still exciting because only because I've watched the sort of whole arc in my in my life. I've been around long enough that when I went to journalism school, they required us to read all the president's men. So there was this sort of excitement about, you know, old fashioned reporting for stories that mattered, that you had to do the hard work of, you know, on your feet, meeting sources, all the way to watching what's possible now um, for people to create from, you know, there are amazing podcasts and, and blogs and things that people can create from very little gear and equipment, which I think do have value and they're exciting. And I think that that getting people to engage in meaningful content through different means is exciting. So I like watching it. I like watching what my kids are interested in. I like the fact that I can get so hooked on a serial podcast that I can't wait to get to the next episode. That might not have happened, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So I think the evolution there is really interesting and it hasn't settled out yet. I, I feel like I see the entertainment arc changing so much. And now we're, we're sort of, again, another inflection point is almost too much. And I hope that those things change. So everything in media and entertainment is really interesting to me. Um, and of course, artificial technology. I mean, that's what good it can do in the world. Fingers crossed. Uh, you know, I'm eager to see. And we'll see what happens. I mean, I do think technology holds so much potential. Again, if it becomes a force for good, not a force for bad. Yeah, all technology, it depends on what you do with it. You can run someone That's over, true. you can drive to the, the grocery That's, store. What about, what about the ones that scare you, though? Because we all have something, trends, technologies, et cetera. What keeps you up? What, what makes you worry? Well, as a parent, I guess I'll say this more because I'm old enough that I'm not as worried about it. But uh, the, the, pri- the privacy, the fact that I'm looking at you right now on a camera that, you know, I will assume closes down when I close my computer after we talk. The fact that people's lives, you know, that I have an Alexa, they'll probably talk to me now, you know, with an earshot of me, you know, does that listen to me or not? The fact that we've sort of so surrendered, technology has allowed us to so surrender um, fears of that. I don't think we yet know all of the damage that can potentially be done by uh, what we've given up in the process. Even just looking at the app, the, the agreements um, for an app that I'm downloading, it, I mean, it's shocking what I've said yes to, and I have said yes to it, that it can go into my calendar, I can see all my contacts, it can use my camera. So I, I think that makes me nervous, and that makes me nervous for the next generation because it's, it's I don't think people have yet fully understood the consequences of that, uh, and it may not have been used as a force for evil yet. I think it certainly could be. So I guess that you know, that's a new frontier and it's uh, the potential is enormous and we don't we don't understand it all yet. Especially as we have more and more devices everywhere, like you were saying. The yeah. the Declaration of Independence was like three pages or something. You read through <laughs> the Airbnb terms of service, that's hundred and fifty, I wanna say. Something And who reads it? And who reads it? We all go to the bottom and check it. We do. We all do it. I do it. You can't it's just it's so absurd. I'm really hoping GDPR will start to have some impact on this because you know when they're building these things, they're like, okay, add this template and add this one and add this one. So no one's really reading this other than the lawyers who none of us want to pay and none of us really like anyways. And even if we even if we did read it and say I object to that, we still want that app more than we want to object to whatever that sort of theoretical fear is. So we do it. We say yes to it. It's you know, we've given away a lot of personal, you know, personal personal power. Uh, and I think that has scary potential. Is that a slippery slope that ultimately becomes the minority report? I, I mean, why not, right? It is possible. It is possible. I don't know what's possible, but I know I have given control to many devices and many, there's more known about me, I'm sure, on the internet than I know about myself in terms of patterns. And um, yeah, I mean, who knows? Who knows what that leads to? What leads to that algorithm? What leads to that predictability? And, and who, who's doing it? Who's checking it? So I want to pivot this conversation. You had another book that you wrote with Clayton and also with uh, with someone had on a previous podcast, uh, James Allworth, How You'll Measure Your Life. And I want to learn a little bit more about that, but really more to get people to think about some of these concepts. So what what was the point of the book? Why, why write a book about how people measure? That, well, that, well uh, I, it personally hooked me, and I'll tell you how it hooked me. So when I was the editor of Harvard Business Review, I was literally just looking for um, an extra article to fill the double issue that we have of the July, August, summer issue. And you know, finding something that wouldn't be too hard, that we could get in there quickly. And I just 
had this idea that was uh, that was going to be July, August of 2010, that it might be interesting to ask graduates of Harvard Business School or soon to be graduates of Harvard Business School if their sense of what success would be, their version of success had changed at all, had they recalibrated it when they were in business school because that particular class had applied to business school when the economy was roaring. And when they were just setting foot on campus, you know, a few weeks in, the recession hit and tanked. And I wondered if in their two years of sort of living outside of the economy, but thinking about what was going to be possible, they had decided to uh, revisit what success would mean to them. So I just started calling around and ended up talking to one of the um, heads of the student group who said that they had had this very moving uh, talk by Clay Christensen that the class had asked him to speak to them as their graduation speaker before ceremonies. Um, and it had been so moving that he had started really thinking about his life differently. So I didn't know more than that. I just thought, perfect. It sounds like an essay. I'm going to go ask Clay if I can figure out how to turn that talk into an essay. And when I went to his office to talk about it, it basically became clear it was his version of the last lecture. It was the idea that he cared profoundly about his students. He wanted them to to use the thinking they'd gotten in Harvard Business School, not just to have successful jobs and careers and make money, but to have successful lives. So the idea was, how do I think about all of what I've learned here so that I can be happy? I can measure, you're going to measure everything else in business. How do I measure my life? How do I decide that I have lived the life I wanted to live? And so he has his students at the last class of every semester walk through the theories they've learned in that class and think about how do I apply it to my life? Uh, and it, it was really powerful for me. It became very clear from talking to him that high achievers, people who are naturally high achievers, are very drawn to things that give you a fast reward, a fast ROI, but may not pay off for you in the long run, may lead you down a path that makes you profoundly unhappy. And so together, I personally was so moved by that, that it was the beginning of my thinking about my own life too, and my own sort of moth to the flame of, of high achievement um, and what has been sacrificed in the process of that. Together with my co-author, James Allworth, who had been one of Clay's students, we, we first wrote an HBR article that went viral and it was clear there was an audience that was hungry for this message. And then we wrote the book, How We Measure Your Life. And the idea is just make sure you're making choices knowing what the consequences will be. You, you can make the choices that are right for you, but don't delude yourself. You know, make If you make a choice, know what the effect of that choice is, its causal mechanism. What's, what's the effect of choosing a job this way or uh, choosing to prioritize my work over my relationships or my family? What happens in the long run when you do that? If you understand that, we think you'll make better choices. Do you have a formula or a, a favorite definition of success or happiness? Oh, interesting one. I, you know, it's, it's a sort of cliche one, but I think it's true, is when you get towards the end of your life, what are you glad you spent your time on and what you didn't you spend your time on? And do you feel that your life has been well spent? And I guess so mine personally is, you know, do you, do you get joy from the things you do every day? You know, from where does joy come from from you? And, and it, it can come from work, and that's great if you're aware of that and, and you make that choice deliberately. But for most of us, it comes from that and something else. Hopefully, it comes from work, but hopefully, it also comes from the relationship. Uh, that you formed, your family, your friends, people who are close to you. Where does your joy come from? And do you have enough joy in your life to feel like your life has been successful? That's that's probably how I would define it for myself. And how do we avoid the treadmill of success? I just sold my company for $10 million. Now I got to go for $50 million, $100 million, a billion. It's always bigger. It's always comparing. Well, I mean, I know you could ask a Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, you know, what, what the number is that, that correlates with happiness financially. And it's a relatively low number. People are no more happy. I can't remember what his current number is, but let's just say it's 80000 or $100,000 a year over that number or not. So I know I know people chase the high of the next thrill, um, and I know that's really easy to do, but ultimately, ultimately for most people, that's not fulfilling. That's not fulfilling enough, and that's not that's not what's going to get them to that. Where does the joy come from in my life? It may be that there's something else about that that gives them the thrill. The being creative or developing something new, there's sort of an intrinsic value to what they're doing, but simply chasing the high of the next big thing, we just know it doesn't pay off in the long run. The largest study, longitudinal study of happiness is something called the grant study, which was done on Harvard graduates, only men, unfortunately, because it started with a, a male pool, I want to say in the 20s. Um, but when they got towards the end of their life, the only thing that they had in common in defining what happiness for them was the their, the relationships, the personal relationships in their life. It was not success in career. It was not financial. It was, do I have a worthwhile and, and, and valuable and, and set of friends and, and family who I care about and who care about me? That was what correlated with success in the long run. 
And I think that's really powerful to understand. Because it doesn't really matter what you do if you don't. If you don't enjoy it, right. why get out of bed? I mean, how, why get out of bed in the morning if you don't? And why get out of bed in the morning to do something you don't enjoy doing and then not have anyone to even share the joy of your life with? I think that's, that's a really sad path to be on. And a lot of people easily find themselves on that path. What's it like being in Boston, one of the hubs of innovation? Oh, I love it, actually. I think it's great because I'm at Harvard Business School a lot. I just, I think there's energy and excitement and creativity. I think, I think Boston is, uh, is a pretty is a pretty cool place to be around that and combined with a lot of academia um, I think the combination is very exciting to be honest with you I really like it what's the most exciting or interesting thing you've seen in the past week could be something someone showed you a video a talk technology that's a good question I well I, this is this is this has been around for a while but I thought it was such a brilliant encapsulation it's a TED talk that was done some years ago but one of my kids showed it to me I thought it was perfect of a guy talking about what makes a leader and he, he just, he does a video showing um, a guy free dancing at an outdoor concert. I don't know if you've seen this, where there's this one kind of crazy lone dancer. And he's trying to start, start his, you know, start something. And the moment one person joins him, one person, he's become a leader. I have a follower now. So the moment one person joins him and now it's a thing. And, and after the, the one person joins him, then people start rushing in. It's really fun. It's, it's, it's a reminder of the value of one person is all you need to be a leader because somebody has chosen to follow you. And if you get one person, you probably will begin to get other people. So you don't need to start big to be a leader. You just have to start with the idea of I'm going to be brave and do what I want to do and lead something. And somebody, if they feel inspired by me, will follow. It's a really, it's a cool video. I can't remember his name. It's worth looking up. It's like Paul Graham, do things that don't scale. So I have one last thing that I wanted to bring up, and that's education. I think in the U.S. and pretty much most English-speaking countries, at least, it's very broken. It's incredibly expensive, and it's preparing people for the wrong thing. How do you think about it? Because Harvard's one of the few institutions that's probably doing a good job and worthwhile. Uh, interesting question. I, I definitely would recommend you read Michael Horn, who is one of my sort of colleagues in, in the Clay Universe, who's written Disrupting Education with uh, Clay Christensen. I, and I'm, I am the parent of two daughters who are college age, about to head to college, you know, one and two years away. So I've thought about this actively. Uh, it's definitely broken. It's, it's heartbreaking that there's this crazy pressure to get into this handful of schools that will cost you so much money that you may or may not ever really be on your feet again. I think it would be incredibly phenomenal if we can think of um, different ways to give people the skills and the education that, that meet, you know, match who they are. I think what you see a school like Southern New Hampshire University doing with its online program is fantastic and interesting. And it's not the, the job is not we're not competing against Harvard. We're competing against you don't get that promotion because you didn't have that qualification or skill. You sort of see education as a different tool, not a credential, not a status symbol, not something that your parents just put in the back of the car, you know, in the, in the back window, but something that actually helps you learn or be seen to have enough skill to get have a better life, basically. And that's okay if it's not, you know, from a seventy or eighty thousand dollar a year school. It's good enough if it's going to help you achieve that. And I think it's really important for us to re- again recalibrate what the role of education is for everybody, not just for some elite aspirational group for whom it will never, it will never have a return on investment. So being creative about choosing college or choosing education and why, why, and what's the payoff for that, I think is really important. But is the problem from the student side or from the expectation side? For me, it feels a little bit like telling people, hey, you shouldn't be racist. You can't legislate that. You can't force it. It's just something about the way people think. And it's slow, small examples that can change that. But we need to change the way that companies think because it is just a credential right now. No one said you're learning way more than you are in college by doing other things. But you've got this special little sticker that says you're you you got the whatever. I agree with you. I think companies can make a really big difference in not necessarily starting with the assumption that we only screen people from certain you know. So that's where artificial intelligence actually be a bad thing. I think if you don't have the right college name on your resume, you might not even get to the next round of screening. But there are some companies that are doing really interesting things. I know, for example, I, I mentioned Southern New Hampshire University. They have a program where companies can sign up as a perk or a benefit for you to go and as part of your job, you can go and get uh, a skills qualification that I might be project manager or something like that. So they they are paying for you to do that online some way through SNHU, where the, the class or the course can take only as long as you need to, to demonstrate competency. So it doesn't have to be a time-based thing. It's, it's, we have certain tests and skills and, and lessons. When you've got competency, you've got that skill. That skill will allow you to get a different job here. We will make you a project manager or whatever. I think companies being creative with not just what they expect, but what they offer can really change the game for people too. What about banning the 
Really, the problem, at least from my understanding, came into effect when we had the GI Bill and the government said, hey, we're going to have free money for people to go to college. And then college is like, oh, shit, free money. we got to get more expensive. And that yeah. subconsciously, that's more or less what happened. And it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. What if we take away the free money? Because this is the only this is the only debt that students can't get out or that humans can't get out of. They can't go bankrupt and get rid of their college debt. Yeah, I don't, that's a tough one. That is a tough one. I don't know. The, I don't know if I have an answer for that other than I think that debt is awful. I mean, it's like unconscionable. And I think um, I think 18, 19, 20 year olds don't realize the long term consequences of uh, what they're getting themselves into. But I do think that people who uh, merit education should be given the opportunity to have that education. I lived in the UK for a number of years. And in the years that I lived there, university went from being free for students to relatively small fees, 3,000 pounds a year, 9,000 pounds a year. Now I think it is. And my British friends didn't think that was a big deal. That's not very much money. And it's not very much money. That's $5,000, $12,000 in US dollars. But to me, it was the beginning of a totally slippery slope. That's how American education started too. So it went from being something where merit, everybody qualified. If you qualified on merit, you went to university for free in the UK too. You started to contribute. You started to probably have a little debt. Um, And I just think that's the path towards getting somewhere down where America is now. So I I liked the British system before they started charging for it. And I think it's sad that they've started charging for it now. But I do think if you're smart enough and hardworking enough and, and, and desired enough, you should be given a chance to go to university. I agree. I think it's super dangerous because it's like the party that has 100 guys and one girl. You get overrated just based off of the demand. So the same thing happens with candidates. There's too many people going to college. So companies can say, well, you don't have a master's. Well, you're not even in the pool. And this was happening when I was coming out of college. I I remember companies were saying, you need a master's in this, not because it has any relevance, but because, well, we can. Right, right, right. And that's true. That is true. And it's become painful because then it becomes a game of one-upmanship, which is simply about, you know, being standing out for not valid reasons, more financial reasons, right? Economic, who could afford the time and money to get a master's degree, as opposed to you really need those skills. Those are two very different things. It's like the opposite of the of the selling on Amazon race to the bottom. This is a race to the top. And yeah. it's not a race that you want to be playing. Karen, this has been this has been a fun one. If you had one thing you wanted to leave people with, a quote, a call to action, it could be anything. Before you tell them more about you, where to find you, your book and all that good stuff, what would it be and why? I would share with you something I learned from Clay, uh, which is how company strategy is formed. Strategy, you know, we often think of as being a declaration. It's the plan for this year. It's the vision from the top floor of the, the C-suite. This is what we're going to do. And it gets handed down to the ranks. That's our strategy. Well, in reality, strategy is actually formed in the everyday choices people in the ranks make. This is more important than that. I'm going to work harder in this than that. I'm going to cut a corner here or not. This customer is more important than that customer. That's where strategy is really formed. And no matter what you say your strategy is, you will not have that strategy. If the choices everybody makes every single day, line people, people dealing with customers, people in back offices, if they are not consistent with that strategy. The same thing is true of our lives. The choices that we make every single day, how we use our own time and energy and resources become our strategy. It's not what we say it is. If you say your family is most important to you, but your everyday choices do not support that, that's not your strategy. Your strategy is something else. So I think it's really important to recognize that just because we will something or wish something to happen, we are in control of that happening or not by how we make our own everyday choices just as companies are when they set their strategy. Actions speak louder than it's. What exactly. Uh, 10 years from now, who's the most valuable company? And then we'll let, and then we'll let you wrap up. Well, uh, I have to say Amazon. I just can't see. I, I just know how integrated Amazon is in my own life. So I can't imagine it's not Amazon, but I'll say my favorite is probably Airbnb because it's just opened up a world of cool things for me personally. I really love traveling and staying in Airbnb places. I think what they've done is amazing, but most valuable, it has to be Amazon. Amazon is part of my life in so many ways now, and I can't see it not being, and I'm just probably tip tip of the iceberg, and I'm probably very typical. And they're almost unregulatable because they have a small enough percentage to say, hey, we're not a big deal, but it's a huge percentage of everything. And they're all over the world, a huge percentage of everything. There's no place that I, I mean, it's, it's amazing what they, it's amazing what they've done. And, uh, and I love it actually. I, I, I rely on it all. I'm a prime customer. I have Alexa. I even had a fire phone for a long time because I'm a fan of Amazon. So I'm going to, oh, I'm going to say terrible, probably. That was a terrible decision, but at least you've, <laughs> at least you've recovered from that one. Karen, yeah, I thanks, recovered from that one. <laughs> thanks for doing this. Where's the best place for people to learn more about you and your work? They can find me on my own website. It's karendillon.net, K-A-R-E-N-D-I-L-L-O-N.net. Or you can follow me on Twitter at, at K-A-R Dillon. At Care Dillon. And there's some pretty awesome books, guys.
guys, you should check those out as well. We'll have links and all that good stuff in the show notes. Thanks for coming today, Garen, Karen. Thank you so much for having guys. me. Thanks yeah. for having me. It's been great. Yeah, cheers, guys. And uh, actions speak louder than words. So go do something and stop listening. Peace. <laughs> If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact. 